this episode, Dr Kerry Thomas continues his examination of a century in the history of the gallery and the Swansea art scene, recorded in January 2014. Welcome then to part two. Now we're just giving you a kind of a nice little lead in to that. I was just talking about Richards in the war period. You can see that part two begins in 1945. So it begins the year war ends. A lot of art histories begin in 1945. It's, it's quite a, an accepted convention. For us in South Wales, of course, 1945 is a very significant year because mentioning coal mines, of course, um, one of the kind of great figures of South Wales and the new government that came in in 1945 was the son of a coal miner, that was an Iron Bevan, of course. So just a few years in from 1945, in 1948, you know, he has the energy, the wit, the guile, any of those words and more, to, to install, if you like, a National Health Service in 1948. So we begin, in, if you like, if we're thinking in a political context with the Ackley government, it's that period of creation, and we're going through to 1980, of course, which saw a very altered Wales by 1980. The year before that, in 1979, um, <coughs> the joys of technology, isn't it? Um, in 1979, of course, Wales decides to vote no to devolution, and in the same year, Mrs Thatcher comes to power. So we go from you know, a, a Labour government in 1945 to a Conservative government in 1980. This is the middle third of my series of talks. As I've alluded to, I'm covering, broadly speaking, 100 years. So each talk is chronological and covers about a third of a century. In, I'm not going to recap, but obviously I'll make one or two gestures back to part one. In part one, we saw in the period 1910 to 45 that Swansea really became preeminent um, on the South Wales visual cultural scene. And the Glynvivian, and all the works I'm going to be showing you come from the Glynvivian collection, as Arwen's already mentioned. The Glynvivian um, really was part of something major, really, in South Wales. It was the first kind of really active institution collecting art in South Wales. Obviously, the National Museum was up and running, but really, the Glynvivian in combination, as we saw, with what was happening on the other side of the road, Alexandra Road, the art college, there was an incredible dynamism which produced all kinds of um, artists of note, including Kerry Richards, who I mentioned going to go. So if we go to... This is the moment that we see transition. As I said, the war is ending in 1945, and almost exactly coinciding with those dates um, is the end, really, of the reign, if I can call it that, of um, William Grant Murray. You can see his dates. He dies in 1950, but, of course, he reached retirement age in, in the middle of the war um, and therefore stands down as principal of Swansea School of Art and Crafts. But he doesn't stop completely because, as you can see, he continues working as Glyn Vivian curator and, and really dies in post um, at the end of 1950. So in these very first post-war years, during that kind of Ackley government period, we're seeing the end of, if you like, the old generation of artists. And I show you a work by him, which is an undated watercolour of Gower, which came into the collection in 1944. Um, it's the end of that generation, and of course, to remind you, um, 
He belongs to the same generation as Augustus John, who I referred to in part one. Um, they were born within a year of each other, and both Murray and Grant, uh, Grant Murray and Augustus John represent a, a significant approach, but an approach really now that's becoming outdated. You can see, you know, the work is um, what we might call quite conservative. Now, you might think, looking at it, that his successor is also working quite conservatively, and I suppose as a painter, he was. Um, he was, of course, David Bell. If you look at his dates, you can see he's a different generation, and I think that is significant. David Bell, who becomes the second curator of the Glyn Vivian, um, is a contemporary of people like Alfred James. So really, we've moved, moved forward, and I think this is, this is representing um, the change of guard. Just to tell you a bit more about David Bell, David Bell was born in London. Um, Murray, of course, was Scottish. Um, so Bell was a mixture of English and Welsh. He, before coming to Swansea, was assistant director of the Arts Council. Now, again, of course, as well as the Attlee government being significant from 1945 onwards, you have other things that are becoming established at that time, such as the Arts Council of Great Britain, as it was known, and they had their own office in Cardiff. So Bell comes to be the, the first assistant director at Cardiff, and he's there for four or five years. Obviously, he can't immediately, that uh, when Grand Murray dies at the end of the 1950, he can't immediately come into a post. So it's a few months later, as you can see. So he officially takes over at the Glyn Vivian in 1951. Here's a painting of his, um, of Klein Common, again, local to us. His style, as I said, seems sort of similarly conservative, but um, being the younger generation, he, he was already more forward-looking, as you might expect, because of, because of that factor, than Grant Murray. If you could have the next one, please. Um, one thing I should have mentioned there as we go into this slide, we, you know, this is, this is fine because this also represents it. David Bell then switching from being assistant director of the Arts Council in Cardiff to becoming, again, an exceptional curator at Glyn Vivian. Um, you know, it was a difficult job, wasn't it? To, to a difficult um, pair of shoes to fill after, after Grant Murray, but everyone who remembers Bell, and there are people around that still do, um, and the material that he produced, the exhibitions he produced, it all speaks for itself. He, he more than um, lived up to expectations. I don't know if you noticed from his dates, though, he actually dies young. So, yeah, unlike Murray, he dies in his early 40s. So that change of guard, it comes in quickly with Bell, but by the end of the 1950s, he, like Grant Murray, dies in post. They both die as curators of the Glyn Vivian. Murray at the beginning of the 50s, um, um, David Bell at the end of the 50s. What, one of the, the kind of key elements that, that Bell is helping to spearhead, um, and in a sense the ground, of course, had been, had been prepared by the likes of Grant Murray and all the, the kind of rising stars of Swansea Art School in the early part of the century, was this move towards what we can call a kind of environmentalism, a South Wales environment. And what I've got up here on the left is a quote for you, with some images to represent what um, is being talked about. You'll see from the end that you've got probably three names that, if you, if you sort of read about art, you'll know. John Piper, of course, born the same year as Kerry Richards. 
Um, Carol Waite, just a couple of years younger, a few years younger, and then David Bell himself. The reason the three names are there and the date 1953 is because they were judging a very important exhibition that was held um, in that year. You'll recall me saying that, that Bell had been the d assistant director of the Arts Council in Cardiff. And of course, in a way, there was a kind of spillover beyond his end of office there in 1951. And th these three, Piper, Waite, Bell, all painters, of course, were judges for what was the Arts Council's first of what became a series of exhibitions held around Wales over the next 10, 20 years. And it was known as, and I know there are some people in the room that have exhibited in some of these, the Contemporary Welsh Painting and Sculpture Exhibition of 1953. And as judges, they point out that Wales has something special and of its own to contribute to contemporary painting. So they're very much thinking about this word contemporary. Um, in the second paragraph, you can see they're describing the kind of work and the kind of approach with those final words, everyday life in Wales. And in the last paragraph, they sum this up as, this concern with environment seems to augur well for the future of a Welsh school of painting. So again, the ambitions of Grant Murray, which perhaps didn't fully come to fruition, partly because of the war and other issues, um, was still being sought after by, by the next generation. Um, on the right, you can see images by John Elwin and Ray Howard-Jones. Ray Howard-Jones is, is, is a female artist. Um, the name, in a sense, disguises that. Um, John Elwin, um, another um, important artist from, that, artist from that period. You can see from their dates that they're similar in age. I mean, Elwin is a um, very close contemporary of David Bell, and in fact, they became very good friends. In terms of art schools, you can see Elwin studied at Carmarthen, whereas Ray Howard Jones went and studied in London, in the Slade, and we've seen that before, how the artists active in South Wales often further their studies um, across the border. The other important thing to say about these two artists is that they were included, as I say, in, in this exhibition, in the first contemporary Welsh painting and sculpture exhibition of 1953. And they come into the collection, I don't think I've mentioned that tonight, I did last time, but in each caption you'll see the year that the work came into the collection. So Elwin in, in 1948 to 1951, <coughs> this Rehal Jones actually very, very recently. Again, one of those kind of sort of rising stars in the pre-war period, of course, was Alfred James. And we need to return to him now, because in the, in the post-war period, there is a significant shift in his work, as you can see. If you look at the two images on the left, the portraits, these are works produced in the late 1940s. And on the right, you have two images produced in the 1950s. And, and this really clearly demonstrates the, the stylistic shift in his work. Um, You'll perhaps recall those sort of jewel-like modular system still lives that I showed you um, six weeks ago. It's difficult to explain this exact shift, but I think one of the key things is war, actually. The, the kind of order of those pre-war pictures, the orderly arrangement of those still lives, which were partly inspired by his father's fruiterer and, and flower shop near High Street Station, and I did get to do what turned out to be the last interview with Alfred James in the 1990s, but what I sensed from him, I mean, he, he more or less said it really, 
I'm trying to remember, I did record him, but I'm trying to remember exactly what he said. I can't remember the exact words, but, but he said the war has changed all that. You know, war is about chaos as well. And I think that perhaps shows particularly in the later work. So really, he never goes back to that modular system, to that, that great sense of order. Although you see a vestige of it in his portraits of his friends. And again, talking about the richness of Swansea in South Wales culture, we have Vernon Watkins, although not Swansea born, and in fact, nor was Daniel Jones. They, they both became resident luminaries in Swansea. Daniel Jones as the composer, Vernon Watkins as the poet and close friend of Dylan Thomas. And of course, we know in this year that Vernon is often overshadowed by Dylan. Not that Vernon was too worried about that, um, such a nice man as he was. Um, so James, you can see he's still, there's a sort of a temptation to order perhaps in the jacket. And there's certainly an incisiveness in the style in the late 40s. Another kind of turning point, you can see the dates, 47, 49, is this year. Because in 1949, Alfred James, um, who was quite a, not a shy man, but fairly, fairly modest um, and restrained, decides to go on the airways, on the radio. And he, he talks, his talk is called, um, What is Modern Painting? And he gives this talk in 1949. And really, what he's talking about, he's talking about the general modern art scene in Wales and around the world. But in a sense, it's a kind of clue as to what was going to happen to him in the 1950s. In that talk, he talks about two types, two categories of modern painting. He talks about one group of painters who he calls exploiters of form. And this really is um, Picasso and the approach of abstract art. And then the other, the other group he calls innovators of subject, which um, he's, in that context he's thinking of surrealism, he's thinking of Salvador Dali. And you can sort of see how that then is going to appear in, in the works which are a decade later, so comparing two sides of the screen. There is this move. Um, what I should mention, I mentioned the, the poet here and the composer, but of course this second picture, perhaps rather obscurely, Chirrup and Fruit, um, does refer to another poet, and it is Dylan Thomas. Chirrup and Fruit is um, taken from Dylan Thomas's prologue, one of the last things that, that Thomas wrote in 1952. And I'll just give you a couple of the lines. It's this. In my sea-shaken house on a breakneck of rocks, tangled with chirrup and fruit, froth, flute, fin and quill. And if you start looking into that, you'll see that they're not completely abstract. So he takes his inspiration from a modern contemporary poet here, and of course from ancient literature with Blood with. Next, please. And again, we take up the stories uh, as I said earlier, really, with Richards in the post-war period. Before that, again, um, he, except for those experimental, I showed you one experimental <coughs> relief sculpture, but in his painting and drawing, he doesn't really reach, quite reach abstraction. But again, if you look at the images on the left, Bouquet, 1952, his artist father, 1955, so these images from the 50s, and compare them to the two images on the right, La Cathedrale Engloutie, number two, and Music of Colours, White Blossom. You, again, you can see this transition. 
um, this development of, of a contemporary style. To unpick it a bit for you, Bouquet obviously shows a woman at a piano, and of course Richards was a very accomplished pianist, you know, he, he was professional standard. Unlike Alfred James, by the way, Alfred, I remember telling me when I went to see him, he said, Kerry, I don't play the piano, I play with it. <laughs> so that, that was Fred James being very modest, um, whereas Kerry Richards was a passionate piano player um, and passionately interested in classical music, and you see that coming out in La Cathedrale Anglouti, which of course is, I said number two, it's actually number three. Um, it's a whole series of works. Uh, this, of course, is Debussy, but although it and he draws, you can sort of see the influence of Matisse in Bouquet, and then of a French um, composer with the, the Debussy-inspired piece. But of course, there is a kind of Welsh connection as well, because the whole La Cathedrale Anglutie series does relate to Cantre Gwylod and that whole myth of things rising and sinking, civilizations rising and sinking. Um, below the waves. Yeah, it's an appropriate year to talk about things disappearing <laughs> underwater, isn't it? Um, um, music of colours. Again, look at look at what we might call that paresthesia, synesthesia. Sorry, the synesthesia. Um, music of colour. Um, you know, some artists will say that they can taste colour. Others can say they can hear it. This is another side to Richards. He's developing a new language. So Alfred James, Kerry Richards, they're developing new post-war languages. And the title, this does time, it doesn't come from a, a poem by Dylan Thomas. It comes from a poem by Bernard Watkins. Um, it's rather poignant as well because, look at the date, 1968. Um, again, these strange parallels. Vernon Watkins had died in America in the previous year, in 1967. Of course, Dylan Thomas had died in America in the previous decade. Um, and Richards uh, put on an exhibition. He was given an exhibition in 1954 in the Glen Vivian, which he called Homage to Two Poets. At that point, Dylan had just died, but of course, Vernon was still alive. But by the time he comes to paint this, you know, this is a kind of tribute to, to, to Watkins. One or two final things to say about Richards, of course. In the 60s, so by the time he's producing the images on the right, um, as well as the influence of French culture and of music and, and, and colour and abstraction, of course, in a way, there was an influence of abstraction coming from the other side of the pond, from America, because in the late 50s, um, the Tate was putting on some major exhibitions of, of American abstract expressionism. And the other thing about that is scale. Um, some of you asked me after my first talk if I could put the measurements on this. It's just, it was, it would be <coughs> difficult to fit everything in, in space and time, but suffice it to say, the two images from the 50s are much smaller than the two images from the 60s. So Richard's work does physically get bigger in the 60s, and I'm sure that's a response to those major exhibitions in the Tate. And in fact, during that period that um, the second important exhibition that was American Abstract Expressionism at the Tate in 1959. By that time, um, Kerry Richards was a trustee of the Tate. So, you know, the boy from Dunvant um, has become a trustee of the Tate by the late 1950s. By 1962, he's representing Britain at the Venice Biennale. Of course, there was no Wales then. Sorry. But officially, there was no Wales <coughs> at the Venice Biennale in 1962, so he represents Britain. 
Um, the other final thing before we go to the next slide is mentioning the 60s now a few times. This is that decade of yet more change with the Glyn Vivian collection because by the time um, these two later pictures on the right are acquired, we, we've now gone from, this is the period of a third curator of the Glyn Vivian, and this is the beginning of the period of the fourth curator of the Glyn Vivian. Um, the third curator was Kathleen Armistead, the first woman to, to hold the post. She, she succeeded the prematurely um, departed David Bell. And by the time the second image was produced, um, she'd become retirement age. So John Bunt, who some of you will remember, had actually begun at the Glyn Vivian. He begins in the year 1967, the year that, coincidentally, Vernon Watkins died. Okay, um, as a kind of preamble to this and some of the advanced publicity, I mentioned, of course, that whereas in the first third of the century I'm looking at, Swansea was preeminent... In this middle section, 1940 to 80, we're seeing a shift, and the shift is towards Cardiff. So I've just got to go back slightly with the top two images in order to talk to you more about the bottom two. And to do that, I need to point out how Cardiff now is in the process of perhaps eventually eclipsing what was happening at Swansea School of Art. And one of the triggers for that, again, was Kerry Richards, because during the war, as I mentioned last time, he, he was producing um, Welsh-inspired work, and he was in influencing a whole group of students at the art college in Cardiff. At the same time, Evan Charlton was working. And you know, it's interesting, this question of celebrity or, or fame, or whatever we want to call it, but just as, in a way, Vernon is sort of overshadowed by Dylan... In a way, Evan is overshadowed by Kerry in the way history is written about. But at the time, and I've spoken, of course, to Glenys, who we all know, and to Joe Baker, who's one of her contemporaries and lives in Cardiff. You know, these were people, two, two women artists, no, women artists, who were taught by the other two, by Richards and Elk Charlton. Now, they all tell me, and I've spoken to about 10 now, 10 or 12 people, um, they're all in their 80s or 90s, who were taught by both men. They said that both were equally exceptional as teachers. Um, but they sort of segregated into groups. And, and again, history tends to talk more about Richardson, forget Charlton, I think. Um, Glenys, who in the war period, um, she studied there, as you can see, 1940 to 45. She then was Glenys Carthew from Fishguard. I don't know if you know this background about Glenys. Um, um, but was living in the valleys by that time the family had moved. And she was primarily in Kerry Richards' class, and I think it shows, doesn't it, looking at the style of work, whereas Joan was primarily with Evan Charlton, and again, look at the difference in style. So they did get a lot into different tutors, but both of them told me for certain sessions every week, for their crits, um, for life drawing, and even for some of the painting, they would mix. So it wasn't a complete segregation, but it's fascinating looking at a whole raft of well-known artists now, um, and you can see you know, the Kerry Richards lineage or the Evan Charlton lineage. But really, you know, this was starting to put Cardiff on the map. It was a significant moment. Okay, um, the war ends, or is coming to an end, and Richards 
um, is drawn back to London. I mean, the reason he was in Cardiff was because of the Blitz and the London art schools were closed. So that's, that was you know, Wales's gain um, and London's loss during the war. As soon as the war looks as if it's ending, in fact just before, in the end of 1944, Richards um, leaves Cardiff. But as I said, the legacy is, is significant. And he's replaced by Eric Malthouse, who we, whose work we see here top left. Um, 1944 to 1973. Again, talking to people like Glenys and Joan, um, they tell me that when Eric Malthouse arrived in 1944, I mean, look at the style of work, he actually was painting like a pre-Raphaelite. He trained in Birmingham, um, and therefore it's quite a dramatic change if you look at this image. So how do we explain it? Well, within a few years, I think, again, it was quite difficult for him, just as, you know, Bell had to fill the post left by Grant Murray, Malthouse had to fill the gap left by Richards, and I think that's part of the clue. So there is a kind of Richards influence on Eric Malthouse. The other influence, and maybe the subject matter gives you the clue, men hooking out fish, it's called, comes into the Glen Vivian in 2002, um, is St. Ives. Malthouse was very interested in the kind of St. Ives school. So, again, very quickly, he, he's changing his style. This isn't dated in the collection, but I'm pretty sure this is probably late 1950s. So, again, there's, there's quite a dramatic um, shift in the way he's working. And the image top right, Orion, is, by the way, for the CASU members in the room, was a CASU, um, was CASU enabled. That came into the Glyn Vivian via Contemporary Art Society, the painting Orion, which you can see is, is, is much more radical in its abstraction. Who's doing those big pigeons? Yeah, yeah, um, fishermen and pigeons. But again, yeah, the pigeon motif that Malthouse is developing comes from Kerry Richards's Trafalgar Square paintings and the pigeon motifs there, so it is definitely, you know, there's, there's a kind of lineage. Yeah. Um, so, the, if you like, the tutors at the top, um, sorry, Eric Malthouse, and the tutor at the side here, Michael Tysak, um, who some of you will remember, at Cardiff Art School, he arrives in the 60s. So, during the 60s, 50s, 60s, Cardiff really is moving ahead of Swansea. Um, before we quite get there, let me talk about Ernest Saboli. As some of you will know, I've written extensively on Saboli, it's sort of, you know, I'm sort of the expert on, on him, so it's hard to know how to sum up um, someone who one knows so much about. This, this image dates to 1960, and again, it's called Astrid and People. You can see it's already on the verge of abstraction. Um, this is after he was a student. You can see he was a student in Cardiff, um, what would that be, sort of ten years earlier. So ten years earlier, he was painting more like the Joan Baker painting I showed you, um, in, in that Welsh environmentalism way that David Bell and Piper and Carol Waite was encouraging. So in the 50s, there was still that residue of that, that way of working. But by the 60s, um, Ernest Saboli is also modernising his style. The other thing to say about him is, of course, Saboli was part of the first Ronda group, and some of you will have seen in a recent um, Friends newsletter that Kerry Barclay, who was just talking to me a moment ago, down the front here, was part of the second Ronda group. 
So um, a significant thing starts to happen in the sort of middle of the 20th century. We now have a group of art students emerging and becoming prominent who are Cardiff-based rather than the Swansea-based ones we saw in the pre-war period. A couple more things to say to you um, is that this moment also, so as well as Zaboli being part of the Ronda group, he's also a founder member of something called the 56 group, which again may be a name you've heard of before. And again, this was a sign really of, of the move towards modernism and abstraction and the rise of Cardiff, because the 1956 group in a sense, and we can call it that because it was founded in 1956, the 56 group was essentially created in Cardiff. So we had the Arts Council office in Cardiff. Cardiff had been made a capital of Wales the first time we had a capital in 1955. Maybe that was a trigger. And in 1956, um, Eric Malthouse, with a few other staff at Cardiff, um, one of them was David Tinker. There's nothing in the collection by, by David Tinker um, in the Glyn Vivian, so I haven't got an example of that, but um, Malthouse, David Tinker and a few others who were teaching at Cardiff Art School set up this breakaway group. They were breaking away from the South Wales group, which I haven't really mentioned tonight, and I should briefly. The South Wales group had begun several years earlier in 1948, and that had been the brainchild of people like Grant Murray and David Bell, South Wales group. That was a much broader church. It had many, many styles. Um, only the younger members of it were starting to move towards abstraction, and they were becoming restless by 1956. Um, people like Malthouse, the tutor, and even Zaboli, as a former student of his at Cardiff. Um, so Zaboli was also invited to become a member of the 56 group. Michael Tysak, who is brought in um, in the 60s, this is a significant moment, in the 60s um, there's a whole revolution in art education, in, not only in South Wales, but in England and Wales as a whole. Um, broadly speaking, until now I've been talking about art produced um, under a different way of working in art colleges, which was craft-based. But in the 60s there was a shift towards a new qualification the, the Diploma in Art and Design, and Michael Tysak was brought in as one of the people to spearhead this new change. The, the man sort of fronting it was um, Tom Hudson in Cardiff. So, um, interestingly, Mike Tysak and Tom Hudson become members of the 56 group in the same year. So again, this constant modernising is happening. So by the 1956 group, by 1967, has become very, very radical. We could have a whole lecture on the 56 group or on Tom Hudson, um, but that's all I can say there. Okay. Um, things have still jumped around here. I apologise for that. That number one should be at the end of the line. So there's still some little blips. Apologies for that. But I think you can read most of these things. Okay, so we've established that Cardiff is now on the ascendant. Um, that new qualification I was mentioning, the DIP-AD, was um, successfully um, introduced in Cardiff, but also in Newport. In fact, Newport did it a year before Cardiff, in the early 60s. Swansea failed to do it. So this was another significant moment. Um, Swansea 
College of Art, as it had become by then, didn't get onto the new qualification. So in a way, it was a bit off the conveyor belt. It was Cardiff and Newport that, that, that were in the ascendant. But before returning to, if you like, the Cardiff-Newport side of the story, um, I need to talk about other aspects, because there is this danger, and in other contexts, I've talked about this um, to, to an audience, that South Wales, which is what we're looking at, isn't just south of the M4, as we now call it. You know? So I'm tending to concentrate on Swansea, Cardiff, and Newport in, these, in this lecture series. But of course, it is sort of inner, inland South Wales that is obviously very significant as well. And a key figure who comes into the valleys of South Wales, again, blown in by war, so again, the war is very much our starting point tonight, um, is Joseph Herman, of course. Um, the Polish-Jewish émigré artist from Warsaw, who comes to Ostrogunleis, as he memorably said, he came for a fortnight and stayed 11 years. Um, so he, as you can see from the screen, was in Ostrogunleis at the top of the Swansea Valley from 1944 to 1955. In part one, I gave you an extract of a piece of writing by Vernon Watkins, and I've returned to it now, but in part one I left the names out, because they didn't really refer to pre-1945, for my sake, but they do come in here now. So to fill in the gaps for you, you can see it. The rich and varied works of visual art, which Welsh painters are producing, so again, Welsh painters, as well as painters like Joseph Herman and George Fairley, who have lived in Wales for a long time, have no precedent in this country. So again, the missing names from last time were Herman and Fairley. <coughs> and again, probably the, the key, key figure in, you know, out of those two, it is Joseph Herman. Notice the spelling change, by the way. You know, I don't know if you want to see the minutiae, but then, you know, how do you spell Joseph? That's, that's another subject. But um, the, the painting at the top is um, A Mother and Child by, by Herman, which was painted in Astrid Gunleis and comes into the Glyn Vivian collection during Bell's curatorship. And Bell was quite brave in a way, um, as were subsequent curators like Kathleen Armistead, to sort of run the gauntlet a bit with some of um, the gallery goers of the day because they were introducing more modern styles that weren't immediately accessible or liked. You may know the context of read, for example, Peter Lord quoting um, Winifred Kuhn Tennant, um, a big patron of the arts in South Wales, who wasn't happy with the kind of way that Herman painted. But David Bell was very supportive of this um, Polish-Jewish artist. Um, I'm involved with a separate project, as is Tom and other people from the Glyn Vivian, to do with Herman, so you may want to ask about that afterwards. So this is this new expressionist style. So expressionism, if you like, is introduced directly into Wales now, not via books or exhibitions, but in person, in the very body of people like Joseph Herman. And you can see this, this style quite clearly. Um, perhaps one of the kind of high points for him in South Wales was this, the production of this work, Miners, um, in 1951. That year, because it was a commission for the Festival of Britain. So Herman was selected um, to produce this huge mural. It's about nine feet high, if you want scale. The mother and child is a, a little bit over life size. But this is an absolutely huge um, mural that was produced for the Pavilion of Minerals, if I remember the title. I'm sure that's right. The Pavilion of Minerals. 
um, uh, in the Festival of Britain site, of course, in London on the South Bank. And of course, his motif, you know, what decided for him that uh, you know, a fortnight would become 11 years, and it really was him suddenly encountering the coal miner of South Wales, which for him was something quite unusual and exotic. I mean, Herman, before and after his Astrid Gunlife's phase, was very much, his sort of central motif, if you like, his light motif was this notion of the worker, of the, the dignity of manual labour. His father had been a cobbler, and obviously exterminated by the Nazis, sadly. Uh, you know, all his family that were left behind were wiped out. But um, there was that deep respect for the manual worker, which particularly included the men of the period, but he, to a certain extent the women. You notice she um, has her hands free with that Welsh shawl so she can be doing jobs around the house. So the miner became very, very significant. I haven't said much about George Fairley yet, and the only work that I can really find in the Glenvivian collection is this little painting called Little Lyric. Again, no date, but it comes into the collection in 1961, so I assume it's late 50s. <coughs> You'll have to take my word for it, but Fairley was very influenced by the work of Herman. Um, I mean, by this point, I think the abstractions increased, but in his earlier work, um, perhaps in the early 50s, late 40s, um, there's a clear debt to Herman, which is interesting, because officially, um, you know, Herman was the outsider, whereas Fairley wasn't. Fairley was Scottish. But um, as Grant Murray had been, but he'd come to teach at the art college in Swansea in 1946. So he arrives much the same time as as Herman, and he becomes a, a founder member of the 56 group as well. So there are all kinds of connections. So he's essentially sort of academically trained. He trained at Edinburgh College of Art, um, but the kind of biggest influence on him, and he was. I remember meeting him as an old man, he was quite willing to say, you know, Herman was, was a significant figure for him. The second part of Herman to talk to you about, again, is the sort of the spread of modernism and, and the influence of Herman, this sort of expressionist style, which we see in this slide. So down the left, I have three of his sketches now done in the Upper Swansea Valley. Again, you can see industrial scenes, obviously, and then a domestic one down here, all dating to that immediate post-war period. And on the right are, again, two other artists from this locality. Will Roberts, who actually was born in Truabon in North Wales, but had settled in Neath as a, as a youngster, so he was essentially a Neath-based artist. And Cyril Eifold, um, again, um, a local artist and actually a miner, a coal miner, from Astrid Gunlois. And Will Roberts and Eiffold um, visit Herman in his studio in Astra Gunlice and become um, significantly <coughs> affected by, by the style of Herman. I'd never met Eiffold, but I did meet Will Roberts. Um, and again, it was a kind of an uneasy situation in a way for many people when they talk to Roberts because the tendency has been to write about Roberts as a sort of derivative Herman. Um, I think that's somewhat unfair. Um, Will Roberts was invited to be a founder member of the 56 group, so he was clearly respected and esteemed by his contemporaries. Having said that, remember 1956, he's invited to join. He, he's one of the first to leave the group in 1964. And in fact, David Tinker, who I mentioned as a founder member, was rather, I think, 
unkind in something he said about Roberts, but when Roberts went, he, he described him as a second-rate Herman. So, you know, there, there were these kind of tensions very early on within the group. So although the 56 group considered itself radical in comparison to the South Wales group, these tensions within the group cl clearly developed quite quickly. And the next kind of tension was by the 1967 period when Tom Hudson, Mike Tysak, they come in and are introducing a more radical abstraction that is sort of beginning to force out some of the others. So I think really, I mean, this is typical of modernism, it's a continuous revolution. It's a continuous, continuous e evolution and revolution. Um, I fold Welsh village, not dated. Roy Roberts, the painting Winter, you can see, done in 1963. Will lied about his age. I can tell you about that again. Um, he actually was born in 1907, but a lot of the books will tell you he was born in 1910. This is to do with he didn't want to be that much different in age from Herman, who was 1911. Um, I remember him giving me a very early catalogue, and he put an ink blot very strategically over his year of birth. Um, but I think the other thing, because I liked Will a lot, was Herman managed to fall on his feet, even though he'd suffered these awful situations as, as a, an emigre Jewish artist. But Will had to struggle all his life. He, he worked in a watchmakers and jewellers shop in Neath. Um, he had studied, as you can see, I've mentioned it, in Swansea, but as an evening class student. And I remember asking Alfred James, did he remember Will Roberts? Because James was there at the same time. He didn't. Their paths didn't cross. So Will really... It's a bit like the situation with Lowry. You know, Lowry was effect effectively a rent collector and suppressed that side. Um, you know, Will had to earn a living in many ways in another way. Um, so there, was, there were these kind of tensions within it. And I think it's something for us to remember. Um, in between last lecture and this, so I've been corresponding with Tom, and we've been talking about you know, how even now, in 2014, it's still a struggle as an artist. You know, the struggle was on then, the struggle is on now. To tell you a bit more about some of the other 56 group members of this period, so you can see this is one of the kind of touchstones. So here I show you at the top and on the left images by Arthur Jardelli. Born the same year as Alfred James, an incredibly long living. I remember visiting him in his Pembrokeshire home, almost reaching 100 years of age. Robert Hunter, who I didn't get to know, um, who was based in Carmarthen. These were two other founder members of the 56 group. And then again, in a way, they also remind <coughs> us that we mustn't just get too fixated on what was happening in the, in the sort of the centres of Swansea, Cardiff and Newport, because Jardelli was sort of out in the wilds, if I can put it that way. He, was, he lived in southwest Wales from 1947 onwards, um, either in Carmarthenshire or Pembrokeshire. Robert Hunter wasn't quite so far in the wilds. He was based in Carmarthen, and in fact taught at Carmarthen College of Art. But they, they were slightly more removed than, than some of the other figures I've been talking about. But an, another reason to show you the work just to tell you about them, is of course the work. And you can see, again, how modernism um, is 
is in full swing in their work by this period. Both of them were painters as well, but what I wanted to concentrate on here in these works were the kind of more relief works, the more kind of slightly sculptural works. So at the top we have Summer Sea. Very difficult to date it, but I think it's either 1960s or 70s. And again, this one, probably the same, again undated. The Hunter, we, we do know the date of, um, green image, dates to 1964. Um, in terms of influence, you know, where is the modernism coming from? Giardelli, like Kerry Richards, was uh, interested in lots of different things. He was very interested in music, he was also very interested in literature. He was an intellectual kind of artist. Um, he was also very interested in the sea, which again is a kind of connection to, to Richards. So you can see the top piece is called Summer Sea. He also did various bits of jobs. So again, back to this problem of how you earn a living. So often he would resort to beachcombing. So pieces like this would be the result of collecting things off the beach. So there was this kind of poverty of material. This one, Spring, is probably difficult for you to see, but it's actually bits of torn paper. Um, he'd get hold of old books, which as a scholar you might think, what an awful thing to do, but he would, because the older books had acid-free paper, he would then shred them carefully and make construction. So he would often find um, cheap materials in order to create his works. Um, as I said, the sea was, was a, a recurring theme for him for 50, 60 years. In the case of Hunter, because um, both of these men were born outside of Wales, as you can see, one in London, one in Liverpool, Hunter, I think, was particularly sympathetic to ancient, if I can put it that way, Welsh culture. Um, very early kind of Celtic symbols and, and motifs. And some of the shapes, I don't know if it reads for you, but some of these abstracted shapes are based on early Celtic symbolism. What's the medium? Um, the medium for which? Hunter. The hunter. It's, it's mixed media. I think it's got a mixture of metal and paint. It's a very shallow relief. Um, again, for some reason, we've got to jump on the head on the header there. But basically, what that's saying is Newport College of Art after 1960. So again, the revolution continues, the modernism continues in South Wales. The centre of gravity continues to shift. And one of the kind of key figures at Newport was Tom Rathmore, Thomas Rathmore, to give his full name. Again, coming from England, working in South Wales, trained um, in the Royal College, as quite a lot of the artists I talked to you about before and tonight have done. And in fact, his connections with the Royal College went very deeply. They were trying to actually um, nick him for themselves. They wanted to come and teach in London, but he resisted. We don't really know why, but he, he stayed at Newport, and he taught there from 1949 to 72. He became head of department, um, I think he became vice-principal as well. What we've got, and I must thank Ellie, um, who's at the back of the room, for helping me source images. Um, thank you for all your, your great efforts. What, what we could come up with was a detail, so that is the only image tonight where I'm not showing you the whole picture. This is a detail of a painting. It's called Coracle Man. It's a self-portrait. I'm sure there's some kind of deep psychological thing here. But he, in the full painting, he's sort of enclosed. He's got the coracle on his back. That's what you see behind his head in that kind of monochrome painting. Um, remember I said to you, he, he decided to stay in Newport. 
he didn't want to go to the big city of London to work at the Royal College. And really it was Newport's gain because a whole generation of, of art students um, thrived under, under Tom Rathmore. And in fact, as I mentioned, I indicated earlier, it was Newport who beat Cardiff by one year to get the new qualification in the DIP AD. Cardiff um, rushed in Tom Hudson in 1964, sort of panicking because Newport got the new qualification in 1963. So, you know, the main rivalry for the 60s and 70s is between Cardiff and Newport um, rather than Swansea. And part of that meant um, new tutors being brought in. So one of them, top right, um, was John Selway. So some of the new staff that came in in the 60s were from South Wales. People like Ernest Zaboli, who I mentioned earlier. Zaboli, who trained at Cardiff, become a founder member of the 56 group, then gets sort of headhunted to become a member of staff at Newport. He arrives in 1963. John Selway... Um, Another Valleys artist, um, essentially from Abertillery, who'd actually studied at Newport. He's brought back a year later than Zaboli in 1964 to teach there. Um, and they were both very important um, artists. There are people in the room that will know both Zaboli, Selway, and Rathmull. You know who you are. Um, the other people that came in were, of course, from England. Um, and one of these was Jack Crabtree, who as you can see, was born in Rochdale, again trained partly in London, um, essentially in London, St Martin's Royal Academy. He came in in 1966. So really, it's Newport and Cardiff that are recruiting the big hitters in this middle part of the century, um, rather than perhaps Swansea. To talk a bit more about the images, you can see that John Selway actually was working as an abstract artist at this point, more recently perhaps we put his work under the heading of pop. And one little, little incidental for you, as I rattle on, um, is um, one of his tutors, because you can see he was at the Royal College, one of his tutors at the Royal College was Mark Rothko. So, you know, um, there is... A, a, the Welsh are looking inwards, but they're also looking outwards. There is an international co connection. Um, Zaboli never went, which is a bit surprising, he never went from Cardiff Art School anywhere else. But I think the reason for that was that he was clearly a Royal College candidate. Um, he got married whilst he uh, was a student, and I think that's one of the reasons he didn't move. And it came from a very poor family as well. Um, so what I'm showing you is a Zaboli, which the Glyn Vivian acquired quite recently from the 1970s, um, a Crabtree from the 1970s. Interesting, isn't it, how outsiders respond to Wales differently. Herman the outsider is excited by coal because it's different. Um, Crabtree is excited by the same thing. This is an image with a coal, with a pithead gear in the background. And in fact, um, Crabtree was exceptional in that he was employed for a year by the National Coal Board to work as an artist. It's the only time it's ever happened. Um, I'm mindful of the fact that sculpture very rarely gets a look in, in sort of art histories and maybe even in art collections. Um, and certainly the Glyn Vivian, as our own collection at the university, is dominated by two-dimensional work 
But what I wanted to do in some of the final slides was tell you a little bit about what was happening with sculpture in South Wales in this period. Um, so a couple of slides on that, and I'll do one late one on painting, and then it'll be my conclusion. Okay, so we've got three sculptors' names on the screen. <coughs> Top left is Jenkin Evans, who, as you may remember from my first talk, is the brother of the painter Vincent Evans from Swansea. But again, like Will Roberts having to work in the um, jewellers and watchmakers in Neath, um, Jenkin had to earn a living as well as the younger brother of Vincent. Vincent you know, went to art college, Jenkin worked as a dentist. So in a sense he was a part-time sculptor and again if you look at the dates you can see he's the oldest of the three on the screen. So perhaps that explains partly why he's working in an older style. Um, these are two works that came into the Glyndon Vivian in the 1980s. Uh, the work is not just portraits. Um, my research has revealed that, for example, going back to that very first Arts Council exhibition that I mentioned earlier, Contemporary Welsh Painting and Sculpture of 1953, he'd exhibited a kind of more freely interpreted piece called Valley's Toiler. So there, there are other categories of work. I, don't, I haven't managed to find an image of that work. But essentially, Jenkin is a figurative sculptor, whereas Jonah Jones and Frank Roper begins to push those boundaries. Um, starting with Frank Roper, top right, uh, he'd, again, trained in England, trained to, the Royal, trained to the Royal College, and also is one of the staff that comes into Cardiff Art School immediately after the war. He arrives in 1946. Um, to teach sculpture at Cardiff. He becomes vice-principal. Um, you can see the dates there, but it's interesting, again, he sort of gets swept aside with the um, whirlwind that was Tom Hudson, who comes in in 1964. So um, he's, he, he ceases to be principal in 1964 when Tom Hudson comes in, um, although he remains at Cardiff until 1973. But if you look at his piece, which is called Cockerel, you can see how... It's at that transitional phase. It's moving from a kind of a figurative style towards a more abstract style. This piece is bronze, but it's worth mentioning that whereas um, you know, Jenkin would ultimately produce all his work in bronze, Frank Roper was very experimental. and He was one of the pioneers in Britain to develop a new casting um, process, and that involved modelling objects such as cockerels, he did a lot of work for churches as well, in and around South Wales and England. He'd model in polystyrene and carve with a hot implement, and then he'd cast from polystyrene directly into aluminium. It was a cheap, quick method, um, and he's one of the pioneers of, of a new approach to, to making sculpture. Jonah Jones, um, again an artist who comes into Wales, again like Roper, born in England, um, arriving in Wales, they're arriving within a year of each other. So again, after the end of the war, you know, all these things, the opportunities are opening up. Um, this piece is called Jacob and the Angel, which perhaps reflects the fact that um, Jonah Jones worked with John Petts. He also worked in the, the workshop of Eric Gill. And Gill was dead by this time, but perhaps you can see some of those influences there. So again, 
a few examples from within Vivian of work in 3D and giving you a clue of some of the kind of developments <coughs> of sculpture. Join us again to listen to Swiss painter Andreas Ruthi talk about the European tradition of still life painting in relation to modernism, his own work and more recent critical writing on still life.